0: Ain't I? I will never be what you want, and that's alright. Got my skin ain't light, and that's alright.
1: You're listening to Studs, and my guest this week is Meg Fitzgerald. Uh, Meg's new book, which came out very recently, is Long Red Hair from the fine fellow at Conundrum Books out in is it Wolfville? Yeah,
2: Wolfville, Nova Scotia.
1: Wolfville, Nova Scotia. Have you been to the...
2: The Conundrum Towers? Yes, I have. <laughs> the library? Yeah. I've heard it's quite... Yeah, famous zine library. Um, yeah, I went out last summer and uh, spent a few days there and uh, did a signing at a bookstore and it was really lovely.
1: I'm sure it's like very quaint and tiny.
2: And... Yeah, super beautiful. You can walk from one end of the town to the other in like 10 minutes and yeah, very You're, picturesque. Like,
1: one coffee shop? and
2: There might be two <laughs> because <but, laughs> <laughs> there is uh, Acadia University there. So oh, okay. they get... S- the population uh, probably triples during the school year. Yeah.
1: So right now it's probably bustling. Yeah. Uh, as well as the your previous book, which came out last year, um, Photo Booth, a uh, biography of the famed photo booths. Um, I was surprised they came out so quick one after another.
2: Yeah. So Photo Booth, a biography came out in spring 2014, and this one now is coming out in fall 2015 um, and I don't think I realized it was so fast until other people started commenting <laughs> on it um, but it's true that I sort of had the idea for long red hair while like photo booth was like a still a nude born baby in some ways um, and it was it was a bit of like a shock to my system to be working on something right away but I also was so used to working on photo booth that I kind of didn't know what to do with my time. Yeah. Now that it was done, like once it was finished, I had a a minor identity crisis because I wasn't drawing for 14 hours a day. Um so it it just felt like instinctual to just start working on something right away.
1: But it's also um photo booth seems very I mean it's um intensive in a bunch of different ways, like labor intensive,
3: mm-hmm.
1: um but also um research intensive.
3: Mm-hmm. It's a
1: thick heavy book and it seems like uh, with long red hair you kind of had more or wanted to just not be so yeah I, I don't know in confined
2: <laughs> to research and yeah so long red hair is all autobiographical um, and so in my mind when I thought about how I was going to make it I was like oh this will just be a much lighter easier process I'm just sort of looking inside myself for you know the stories that I want to tell and how I want to tell them um, but in many ways, it was more challenging to make them photo booth because I had like an internal struggle with every choice that I was making. Um, whereas with photo booth, like I was just telling the story as it was mm-hmm. and, and trying to document this little-known history um, and, and just trying to do it justice and make it, you know, narratively interesting. Uh, but I didn't. I I wasn't going to leave any big piece of Photo Booth history out when I told that story, whereas when I'm writing this book, I'm, I'm calling it a graphic memoir, but really it's 96 pages, um, so there's no way it can sum up my whole life, so I really had to choose which stories to tell and how I was going to tell them.
1: Um, it's interesting, kind of, So I read them both together yesterday, read Photo Booth, and I read Long Red
2: Hair mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm glad read, I'm glad you read them in that order. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and and it's interesting because Photo Booth, um, I found with the book you got a lot more personal as the book progressed mm-hmm. uh towards the end, revealing a lot more about yourself through the process, um, in less of a kind of past observer way to more you know, involved. Yeah, in the it's Yeah, it becomes
2: my story as I become way more hands on in the community.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um is that something that came out of working on long red hair? It's like wanting to kind of explore more personal.
2: Definitely. I, um. so when photo booth came out and it was received well, I just started getting really kind, like fan mail type messages, emails and Facebook messages. And, um, and I would meet fans. I use that word loosely. I don't know if I really have a fan base, but I would meet people who had read the book and enjoyed it at comic book conventions. And I, It felt very powerful um, to realize I had formed all these genuine connections with people. So Mm -hmm. even though I didn't know them, they, if you've read the book, you really do know me. Like I am presenting a a very real version of myself. And so I realized that I was creating all these intimate connections with people all over who had read the book. Um, So I think sort of riding that high, I decided to make Long Red Hair. I was like, okay, I shared X amount in Photo Booth and now I'm willing to share more to see how the readers will take that and how people will respond. And and if people responded that much to the, the details in Photo Booth, maybe I can really help people or relate to people on a whole new level by sharing more.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, because yeah, I should say that too, like when I wrote Photo Booth, I felt personally I was only putting content in there that was like maybe a touch more personal than I would blog about. I didn't actually feel it was that personal, but then after – like family members, like my extended family, read it. They were all like, "Whoa, I feel like I know you so much more now." And I was like, "Oh, I like I had no clue it was as personal as it was until I got that feedback."
1: It's also like I don't know how you are with your family. I know it seems like you have a pretty well connected family, mm-hmm. but with myself, there's a lot. I mean, I'm a pretty private person. In a lot of ways, maybe I'm quite the exception to the, a lot of things. But mm-hmm. um, with family, you don't necessarily get into like the daily details of what your life is, especially when you're in your twenties and so much where they know everything about your daytime stuff and your teens, when it's yeah. you're really exploring more, they're not going to find out all that minutia of like, yeah, here's sure. what happened in Europe.
2: Yeah. Or even when you visit with your extended family, you only see once a year, maybe twice a year. You just catch them up usually on the good stuff. And yeah. you only maybe catch them up on the bad stuff. If there's something like some huge life event that's happened, like an Ill- illness or something. But, um, those tiny little details that make up your day and, you know, eventually form your identity often get left out.
1: Was there some kind of something through doing that book that gave you insights into your own personal identity that you hadn't realized before?
2: Um, I'd say the insights have mostly come from people's reactions to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause so much of the time, the way we behave is just our default and we just kind of assume everyone is like that. Um, so, Based on what people have told me (laughs) from what they read, I'm like, oh, I guess maybe I'm different from other people in that way. Um, So, so many people have said that they wish they were as passionate about something as I was about, or as I am about photo booths, Um, and I had never (laughs) even thought of it. I was like, what? Doesn't everybody, like, like quit their job and break up a relationship and, like, decide to move across the country just to, like, pursue an interest? Like, what do you mean? Uh, I thought everyone had hobbies like that. Um, and I say that, like, right now, kind of tongue-in-cheek, but genuinely, like, it hadn't occurred to me that that was weird.
1: Yeah. You know? I think part of it is also people don't... Um, I mean, there, I have lots of friends that don't necessarily have hobbies, and lots that do, or, like, collections and stuff. And maybe people just don't realize how much
2: they get invested in something. Mm-hmm. It totally snowballs. And as soon as you meet other people who are also into it, it just, like, accelerates that... You know, it grows and grows and grows. And before you know it, you're looking around and being like, wow, I'm spending all my free money on eBay buying these rare photo booth pictures. (laughs) You know, like, (laughs) I don't buy music anymore. I don't go to movies. I'm just like, you know, trying to bid to win this picture from 1925 of like a mother and a clown or something like that. Yeah.
1: Now, maybe we should go into a bit about your obsession with photo booths and kind of where that came from.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Just kind of give... The listeners a little context of sure what why this is so important
2: yeah. yeah so specifically when I refer to photo booths I'm talking about the analog chemical machines so not the new digital ones and not the now when we say photo booth we actually most often are referring to say like a pop-up stand at a wedding or something like that and those are all great but that's not the the focus of the book. Um, so. The book is really uh, chronicling the history of the photo booth, making a case for why it was so historically important. Uh, It was really cutting-edge technology, Um, and then I also follow this international community of people who are trying to preserve the last of these chemical machines, uh, as well as artists who are using them in their artwork. Um, And as I go along with this, I myself become a, a pretty big member of this community, so I started taking photo booth pictures myself in the mid, sort of early mid-2000s, and uh, it was just sort of a ritual for myself after high school, because I had a I had to walk through a mall to get to the bus stop to get home, and uh, there was a photo booth, actually at the time there were two photo booths there for me to choose from, and I would just take pictures. So whether it was a good day or a bad day, or if I was with friends or alone, I just started taking pictures, and it was a, a creative outlet for me, and I um, I've always really loved documenting things so I kept everything in really you know pristine plastic binders and like it was in plastic <laughs> sheets and uh, had the location and date and names of people written on the back of every photo and I still have all my pictures um, so it just sort of became this visual diary and people started to know me for it and would love to see my pictures and would start sending me pictures and giving me pictures on my birthday that kind of thing uh, and then in the Later 2000s, I found online this community, photobooth.net, and that sort of that was the snowball effect for me once I started meeting other people and realizing I wasn't the only one who was so obsessed with these machines.
1: Um, did you have an idea of the history when you started on the book?
2: Uh, oh, what, definitely by the time I started on the book, yes. Yeah. Uh, not when I was younger, but um, there are a few great books, well, one in particular uh, written about the history of photo booths. And so one is called American Photo Booth by Naki Goranen. And uh, she really has done her work. You know, she she I, I look like a tiny fan compared to Naki, so she's really given her whole life over to it. Like her whole house is just... Storing photo booth pictures. Oh wow! Um, so is that kind
1: of like a warning to yourself of how far to delve? Into yeah, this? it was.
2: So and so, I met Naki, and I I chronicle I chronicled that adventure in in the book, and um, it was really great to meet her, and she's a very kind soul. Um, but it was eye opening for me of how far it could go uh, if I didn't sort of open my eyes. So I um, in making the book, uh, I feel like. I was sort of writing both a a love letter and also sort of a eulogy to photo booths, you know, recognizing that they're going away. Um, And I also sort of had this funny, you know, indulgent hope that maybe the book could change the course of the history or something, Um, which it actually, it kind of has, but we can talk about that in a bit. Um, So writing the book, though, was a very cathartic experience for me, and it was my way of saying goodbye. So since I finished it... um, My relationship with photo has changed. I'm a little bit... Like, I know they're going away, but I'm a little bit less sad about it. Um, And the book made my relationship to photo really public. And so in this last year or so, I've just really tried to make it private again and and, uh, sort of recreate, like, what the early years were like for myself. Mm -hmm. So I... Try. I use a photo booth every time I pass one. Pretty much, I always, you know, have a couple toonies in my wallet, <laughs> um, whether it's a good day or a bad day. I just document it, especially because I know my opportunities to take pictures in the future are going to be limited. And um, and I, yeah, I just want to go back to like what it, how it all started for myself.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah,
1: I'm really interested in the conceptual use of photo booths in some of the art shows that you explored and stuff, because, I mean, you talk about, uh, when you're in art school, uh, art college university, because mm-hmm. you went to art, school, art yeah. high school, well, too. <laughs> yeah, I did, yeah. Um, <laughs> art. it was, it, it reminded me of every comic I've read where folks, uh, try to talk about comics with their Art school teachers. It's like, oh, this is the exact same story.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and that's I also why I sort of felt that it was appropriate to tell the story of the photo booth in a graphic novel because they both sort of exist in these fringes of pop culture. You know, Mm -hmm. I think they're kind of they have this these kindred spirits because of that. Um yeah, so I did uh try to use photo booth pictures in my artwork in my first and even second year of university. I went to the Alberta College of Art and Design. And um, it just was never received well, not by my peers and not by my teachers. Uh, a big part of it is that my, the work wasn't that good. So, yeah. I, like, I don't hold that against them. I, I was trying to figure out why I liked the machine so much, but really it looked like I was just trying to create, like, prettier, interesting pictures. Um, and also, we culturally, we thought of photo booths differently at that time in Canada because you could still, you know, in 2005, find these color chemical photo booths in shopping malls and Greyhound stations everywhere. So they weren't seen as precious machines. um, And they weren't quite seen as like appropriating low art or anything like that either. So it was kind of this middle space people didn't understand. So I put my interest in photo booths aside and just kind of kept it as a private hobby. And then it wasn't until sort of 2008, 2009, that I realized that there were some incredibly esteemed and very prolific Uh, incredible artists that were you know using Mm. these photo booth pictures in their artwork and and that really inspired me
1: one of the things was the surrealists you mentioned Mm -hmm. using a bunch but it's not really seen as part of the general surrealist
2: yeah exactly so um the surrealism movement in europe really coincided with the invention of the photo booth in 1925 and so they thought it was just genius because they were all about the automatic and uh it was so perfect and ideal for them to have this machine that just took your portrait, you know? And so you were not really the photographer. There was no photographer and it just captured the moment in this unedited way. Um, but even that, I mean, I took a, an art history course on surrealism and Dadism um, when I was a student and they never even mentioned, yeah. uh, all these photo booth pictures they had because history has sort of erased, uh, the importance of the photo booth. You really have to dig for the history.
1: Yeah. um, With that, you mentioned a change um, in regards to how people think of the photo booth since the book coming out. Um, What
3: were you referring to? Yeah. Uh,
2: (laughs) Well, I think, so I've just heard, you know, these are all sort of one-on-one interactions that I've had with readers. But I've heard from a lot of people that, you know, after reading the book, they made a point of going out and finding a chemical one in their area that they could use. And it's a tiny thing, but it's a small little victory for me to be like, ah, you know, that's one person (laughs) that used one that wouldn't have otherwise. Um, On the bigger scale, I can't really say that, um, or I can't at least take credit for uh, what's happening in the indie photo booth industry right now. Um, So in the States and in Europe and Australia as well, what's happening is these, these old machines, mostly black and white ones, are getting bought up by small businesses and they are refurbishing them, figuring out how they work, uh, and then putting them in either bars or art spaces and running them as small businesses.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So they weren't financially... The photo booths stopped running because they weren't financially uh, profitable for these huge companies anymore. But it actually can earn you a pretty good livelihood if it's just you know one or two people operating it. So... That's become a huge trend. It hasn't really hit Canada because in Canada we still have these color chemical photo booths that are operating in some places. Uh, there are unfortunately none left in Vancouver really? uh, anymore. Yeah, There used to be one at the, uh, the bus depot. Yeah, it just got taken out actually. Oh. Yeah, I, I, uh, before I came on this trip, I emailed uh, Auto Photo Canada, which is the company that operates all of the ones across Canada, and asked for an updated list. So, yes, there's still two in Victoria, but yeah, that one's gone.
1: It makes sense in Victoria. I don't yeah. know if you've been there. but it's Yeah, like I was there old, actually tiny.
2: just before here. Okay. Yeah. So what I, well, another sort of a correction, I guess, to make to the book is that um, when I made it, I was told that the, the, the color chemical photo booths that are left in Canada would be gone by the end of uh, summer 2015.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and then I was told like, okay, there's a bit more of a paper stock left. Uh, so maybe now it'll stretch until Christmas. And so I was slowly. I've been hearing from people too across Canada, like, oh, this booth is gone, and this booth is gone, and this booth is gone, and it sort of stings a little bit every time. Um, but in the recent email exchange I had with Auto Photo, they informed me that they are uh, actually the booths that are left right now will probably make it until next year, the end of 2016, um, because because they have removed so many of them gradually. They actually have more paper stock left. Because yeah. there's fewer machines. Yeah. So it's a simple math issue, I guess. <laughs> and, um, and so that is, is a huge relief to me to just kind of have received like 16 bonus months with these photo booths in Canada. Oh, I'm sorry. There's so many more in kind Vancouver. Of yeah, room. I know. I was, well, actually, I shouldn't say that. Uh, so there actually is one in Vancouver, but it is an independently owned one in a store. Uh, I haven't visited yet. So what store? I do know the store, but I have to look it up. I don't know off the top of my head. I have to, it's in an email. Yeah, sorry, I can't uh, rattle it off. It's on Main Street, but that's
1: oh, yeah. Oh, I think I know. I think it's because um, there's a bunch of weird, different boutique clothing stores. Is it a clothing store? I'm
2: actually not sure. There used to be one in a skateboard shop on Main, and then that disappeared. So I think it actually may have been the skateboard shop one that's just moved. Shops, anyway. So there is a there is a photo booth, a chemical photo booth left in Vancouver, but it's just uh, privately owned, which hopefully will be the new trend across Canada once they are removed. As people will start putting them back in places. I'm sure
1: there'll be more finding paper stocks hidden somewhere.
2: Well, the thing is, the color paper isn't made anymore, but there's still a manufacturer for the black and white paper. And so what's happening now is that they are converting the color machines to operate on black and white paper. That's kind of awesome. So, yeah. I so, kind of like that. So that's the, the saving grace. It's, the, it's not a perfect solution because the color machines um, have entirely plastic parts in their interior, so they mm. weren't really built to last. Uh, whereas the old what we call dip and dunk machines were all had all these metal interiors, and so there are machines that are sixty years old that are still running yeah. if they 've been serviced well,
1: not like the digital ones, which sound like the last a year yeah,
2: I mean a digital machine at most has five years in other words, and then we just you know put it in the landfill like so much new technology.
1: It made me think about reading about the that recycling or not recycling, but the moving on mm-hmm. remind me of the uh, photocopier and the res- Mm-hmm. and how that's working because we're sitting in my office. We have a photocopy machine. Mm-hmm. And I talked to our photocopy guy and they're like, oh, let me know if you guys have any brissographs. Like, oh, yeah, we throw those things out all the time.
2: Yeah, <laughs> Just, yeah I know. And which is funny because so many artists now, comic book artists who are self-publishing their work are using them. So yeah. there is a new demand for them.
1: Yeah. You'll find them, I think, a lot more on the East Coast and the West Coast. Vancouver is so weird that we don't have that kind of same... Kind of stockpile of technology I think because like space yeah. is so yeah. limited here yeah it's that true things get chucked out so quickly yeah uh, now Photo Booth uh, as I mentioned it's, it's a big book um, and f- you can totally please correct me here mm-hmm. um, you did a zine before that on one of your trips uh, that you talk about in the book mm-hmm. had you done much comic work before this
2: um no. <laughs> so my longest ever published comic before Photo Booth was one page, and that was for Bitch Magazine. I did a, a feminist story, which is like a, yeah, a, a, a one-page comic to uh, profile some amazing woman in history. Uh, well, what was the amazing woman? Uh, Louise Boyd. She was uh, an Arctic explorer in uh-huh. the 1920s uh, and later. Um, Anyway, so that was my one piece before this. Uh, I should say, though, it wasn't like my interest in graphic novels came out of nowhere. I'd actually written very detailed scripts um, for a couple of fiction books that I had worked on uh, that I wanted to make. And I had, you know, friends read these things and i had workshopped it and I was like, okay, this is a perfect story. And then I sat down to draw it and just didn't have the, the technical skill or patience to draw it. And did the math of how long it would take for each page after doing a few test pages and was just like, this is crazy. Like, this will take me, like, two full-time years of my life to make this fiction story that I just <laughs> actually don't care apparently enough about. Welcome um, to comics. Yeah. It's insane, this world. Um, so I I had wanted to for a long time. Um, and I've always been, like, a comics reader and graphic novel fan. And uh the reason why I actually did it with Photobooth Biography is because it was a cause greater than myself to kind of kick me in the pants.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I needed it as an incentive, and I don't know if I would have finished it or if I would have finished it so quickly if it wasn't that the end of these machines is so imminent. Um, I wanted it to come out when it did because I wanted it to have a full year out in the world before Photo booths in Canada were gone. So to kind of give it time, people time with it, you know? Yeah. It would be a different book if photo booths were already completely entirely gone. Uh, it would read differently. But there's still this sort of grain of, of hope in all of it. Optimism. Yeah, so the, the very tight timeline of the book um, helped me just sort of produce it. And I, I couldn't sort of lollygag anymore. But the growing pains of making it were steep. <laughs> <laughs> I started mixing metaphors there. But yeah, it was, it was hard uh, having Ooh. no real background um, in that. And in the end, I actually, I redrew about the first third of the book. Uh, so once I Jesus. had, yeah, because my style had just gotten so much better and so much tighter and my eye for yeah. composition, all of that had just really formed. So the way I was kind of thinking of it was that like when I started making the book, I was crawling and then sort of midway through by then I was walking and by the end of it, I was running. I could crank out pages much, much, much faster and they were good pages, um, And so when I looked at it, I realized I had to just redraw all of the crawling pages. The crawling just like couldn't hold up. So the the first third got redone. Yeah, (laughs) I know. It was, it's for people who don't know, it's a 280 page book and uh, it's just a lot of text with, yeah, and a lot of text. And it's just a a stupidly huge undertaking. I don't recommend it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So your future books will not be 280 pages.
2: Well, I won't make that commitment, but I'll give myself more time uh, for them. That's for certain. I- I've been there's sort of no, like, um,
1: technological cliff that you're gonna have to Yeah, work exactly. Yeah.
2: Well I do have two ideas for more books, but um, I can talk about that later. But uh, yeah, so I there's more in me, but the way I've been sort of joking about it is that um, I'm doing it backwards. So this was like the big book and Long Red Hair is 96 pages. And then right now I have like a five-page comic coming out in um, this anthology, The Secret Love of Geek Girls. And uh, and I've got an eight-page comic coming out in the next issue of Tattle Creek. And so I'm kind of like just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And so next I think maybe I'll just make a web comic or like, you know, <laughs> just like do, do the backwards version. Do a far but, side farce. Yeah. But I did, I made a, I made a zine. I made this sort of little booklet um, of, about photo with a biography but it wasn't a standalone object. The whole point of it was to try to get a publisher, and, um, that, which seems like a completely naive like, <laughs> thing to do. Like, I'll make a 12-page a zine, and maybe a publisher will buy it, and then they'll see me at the you know comic book convention, and then they'll publish my book. And that's actually exactly what happened. So I can't like, It's naive, but it's to a T what happened. Um, so that thing, like, if anyone has a copy of that, there was only, I don't know, maybe... 30 of them made out there in the world. They're collector's items. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, I find the that kind of... That learning through um, doing it kind of interesting, like forcing yourself to have to to do this. Because um, we mentioned before you went to art high school, art college, um, mm-hmm. but was drawing ever a part of that?
2: Yeah, so my degree is in drawing. I have a BFA oh, okay. in drawing, but... I went to a very conceptual program, so I actually, in my last year of my program, I was just making sculptures out of fabric, uh, and my teachers were okay with me calling that drawing. Um, So I actually didn't, I learned how to figure draw and that kind of thing, but it wasn't a, and I've always been good at drawing, like it was the skill that I knew I was good at from the time I was a child, Um, but I certainly was not educated in comics besides, you know, just informal education. Um, the thing that actually really helped with this book is that I did a, a one-year design program at uh, NASCAD University, the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design University. And uh, if I hadn't done that, there's just no way I would have technically known how to just physically lay this out yeah. as a book and do all that, that stuff. It's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. <laughs> but there's um, a reason why there are book designers who do just yes. that.
1: Yeah. Anytime I've had to do anything, I Get someone else
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah you don't have to learn it just hire someone i That's feel good. bad because yeah.
1: for my book also from conundrum uh spoiler folks yeah um it's like 300 pages of text i'm sure andy yeah was cursing <laughs> me at some points
2: yeah as he laid all that out <laughs> yeah
1: um now you taught yourself to draw with your non-dominant hand
3: mm-hmm <laughs> How <laughs> Just do you like to do stuff? that?
2: Um, well, I'm pretty fortunate already um, in that, like, I'm left-handed, but I've always lived in a right-handed world. So um, I think it's pretty well. It's certainly a lot easier for a lefty to try to become a righty than a righty to become a lefty. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was already really good at doing detailed work, like with a computer mouse or with scissors, and even like sports equipment. Um, and so when I, I moved to Halifax in 2011 and it was January and I could not get a job anywhere and I had almost no friends and I just had all this free time to myself um, and I just figured like I should learn a new skill. So I just, uh, I bought those like line notebooks you have when you're a little kid, like with the dotted line exercise in the middle. Books. Yeah. And I just started practicing writing. So I'd write out the alphabet and write out pangrams, which are like sentences that have every letter of the alphabet. And i just, like, watch TV and just, like, write things down that people were saying. And I just I practiced for maybe, you know, anywhere from, like, four to six hours a week until I got better at it. And um, now it's just something I can do whenever I kind of wake my hand up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, It can't – it's not as good as my left hand, certainly. But uh, it's good enough that I – if I want to, if my left hand is tired or cramping, I can do my sketches with my right hand. Um, So it's not – sometimes people are like, whoa, you know – you must be like magic that you were born ambidextrous. And it's like, no, like everything, like the, the impressive thing is actually like if you learn how much time I spent <laughs> learning the skill, it's not that I like was, was born with it or anything. Um, and also just to be very technical, because some people might care, uh, I'm not ambidextrous because mm-hmm. you have to be born ambidextrous. And that's, there's a very small percentage of the population that is. I'm actually dual handed. That's the term.
1: There is, I forget her name. Um, but another conundrum person who is actually ambidextrous.
2: Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah,
1: I forget her name. It's a good fact. Uh, but yeah, so we you guys should do we'll a, have a oh yeah, It's true. That would be so
2: fun. <laughs> yeah. Do a signing side by side.
1: Now, your follow-up, uh, Long Red Hair. Um, uh, more personal, um, kind of about adolescence, growing up, figuring things out about yourself. But I also found it like, it's a very personal work, but at the same time, you kind of avoid being too personal. Uh, and I wonder if there's like a particular tug of war you're trying to play there.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I'm trying to play it or if you just kind of have to play it yeah. if you're doing autobiographical work. It's a constant negotiation of just how much you're going to share. Um, so I... In everyday life, I'm probably an over-sharer, <laughs> with, like, with friends and in conversation. And so I don't feel um, like holding back is, is natural to me. Um, and I wanted to write Long, Red Hair, to connect more with people and to be more honest and, and just to kind of see what it, what it would feel like to sort of, like, fall into the laps of readers and, and be vulnerable with them. Um, but about halfway through making it, I got... Um, some pretty uncomfortable messages from strangers. Um, uh, some some emails, some over Facebook. And it was just sort of a fluke that it all kind of happened within like a week or two span. And it happened after Photobooth Biography won the Doug Wright Spotlight Award. Um, and so I think it just kind of put me on more people's radars. And people who hadn't even read Photobooth Biography, but they were just like, oh, she's a female comics creator. I'm going to write her a sexist a message. Yeah. yeah. And um, it really really creeped me out. It really bothered me. And I I replied to most of those people. Some people, it seemed unproductive to do, and so I just blocked them. Um, And they were all, like, of a sexual nature in a totally, like, unwarranted way, especially because photobooth biography has no sexual content. Um, So that really changed how I thought about making Long red Hair because all of a sudden I felt very vulnerable in an uncomfortable way Mm -hmm. um, about sharing too much and recognizing that I also if this book was going to be critiqued, that it was going to be critiqued on a level that, that felt way more intimate than Booth did. Um, so that that really put everything into perspective, that negotiation. Mm-hmm. Um, I have had some friends read it and say like, oh, I wish it was longer. Like that was sort of their, not their complaint, but their one kind of like... Yeah, and I can see that where more. you're kind
1: of flowing with it. And mm-hmm. like I said, like you kind of, you're holding back. And so that's a tough... It is, like, I see it as, as definitely, like, a tough one. Like, there's, like...
2: Yeah, with the with the chapters about my childhood, um, which is the majority of the book, about my childhood and teen years, I feel very comfortable sharing with it that time because I know the reader knows that I have changed since then. I have literally yeah. aged. I look different. Um, the chapters that I'm writing from my adult perspective, that gets more difficult because the people I'm writing about are still in my life. Um... Mm-hmm. And I'm also then talking about, like, my politics as a queer woman and my sex life now. And, uh, or I might be talking about my sex life in 2010. And somebody might just assume because I was an adult in 2010 and I'm an adult now that what I'm saying and expressing in that book is also true for me now, which yeah. I don't want people to make that assumption. So truthfully, the book actually um, was going to have more content about uh, alternative romantic relationships um, and that was sort of one of the, the the tag lines that was on the original back cover. And I just actually felt a little too uncomfortable
3: mm-hmm. uh,
2: going into the specifics of that and uh, talking about like non-monogamy and polyamory, um, given the kinds of emails I was getting. I was like, maybe I should just pull back. Um, the, the plus side of that was that because I didn't explore that information, um, the book is appropriate for... Uh, ya sections at libraries, mm-hmm. so it's the book is a lot more accessible for teen readers and young adults, and um, and that will dramatically increase its readership. So it's sort of a, a trade off, yeah. and um, and I think that that content that I ended up cutting will probably end up somewhere else someday. Uh, I'm not sure where yet, but who knows? So it's um, yeah, it's a negotiation. Yeah,
1: and it's I mean it's it's obviously horrible unfortunate it comes to this where you need to be careful about what you put out there about yourself because this isn't your story isn't a unique story mm-hmm. in the way that the experience that you've gone through like many women cartoonists go through the exact same thing mm-hmm. um, I think just yesterday I don't know if you saw Julia Wirtz that did, uh, did a museum of mistakes and she used to do a called mm-hmm. fart party Mm-hmm. Uh, posted a big thing about just the harassment that she's been
3: getting recently
2: yeah I think people who do web comics are extra susceptible to it just because mm-hmm. it's so easy to anonymously leave a comment um and so I think I've actually been I don't want to say fortunate because it makes it sound like it's part of the our culture and it, and it shouldn't be um, we shouldn't give those people a pass but um I'm I consider myself lucky that what I have received of that kind of stuff has actually been extremely limited in the big scope of things. Mm -hmm. And I don't personally think that it's an issue in the alternative or like indie comic scene. So for example, when I go to TCAF, I I feel like I see about half the people being female creators and half the publishers and industry folks seem like they're also women. So it feels pretty balanced. It doesn't feel like a a charged space in that sense, but then I imagine if you're going to a mainstream sort of superhero comic book convention, it feels quite different.
1: It's also that weird online anonymity thing where people think because they're on the internet they can be monsters. Yeah, and that makes it okay because we won't see them. But if you see that first person, first person person, yeah, it's not do very that.
2: different. Yeah, very different.
1: Um, now you're in Vancouver to do improv. Is it what you're doing mm-hmm. for, yep. for the Fringe Fest? And that's, yeah. that's kind of more of your main thing.
2: Uh, sort of. It's actually for the Vancouver International Improv Festival. So it's oh, its own okay. festival that runs for a week. It's been happening now for 16 years. Um, people come from around the world to perform in it. Um, it. Improv is the like counterbalance that I have in my life. It's your
1: introvert, extrovert. Yes, it's like this
2: funny thing that I keep going between. Um, I love improv, but I also only need to perform probably once, maybe twice a week to fulfill that need to like just be a louder person (laughs) and be heard and and be outspoken and to be social and to see other people and connect with other people. Because improv, unlike a lot of other, say like stand-up comedy, is really about teamwork and being Mm. present and being in the moment. Um, you can 't improvise by yourself you you need that support group, so it 's a really lovely thing in my life, um, but I am definitely an introvert so i spend uh I spend an hour walking by myself every morning that 's how I start my days just enjoying my own company <laughs> my own <laughs> thoughts and then I uh, come home and write emails and then I- usually draw for clients, maybe do some writing for myself um and then maybe in the night, I go out and do a show. So I'm I'm alone most of the time, which is how I like it. <laughs> which also maybe explains why I have been single, essentially, for six years. So I'm just like, I just really like my own space, you know? It's okay. It is okay. Um, sometimes I have to kind of grapple with that, but it is okay. Uh, so yes, this week, I'm very delighted to be here performing at the festival. Though I've, I'm really having to um, channel my tiny little hidden extrovert because i'm um performing for 6 nights in a row. So mm-hmm. i'm on day 3 of that right now.
1: And you're also doing workshops. Yeah, i'm doing workshops
2: point. all day and then performing at night. So i'm i'm actually alone almost none of the time. <laughs> Which is very hard for me. But it's not uh, it's not a permanent thing.
1: And Vancouver's such a good city to be alone in. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I, I don't know how that sounds. To to <laughs> <laughs> it's a good place to be alone. But, it, I mean, it's it, there's a weird coldness to Vancouver, which I don't know mm. if you've experienced at all, mm-hmm. uh, where people are really disconnected from each other. Yeah. And so it's really easy to just kind of fall into it and be anonymous.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I can see that.
1: <laughs> uh, one thing I forgot to talk about with Long Red Hair is uh, with Photo Booth, it's black and white. Mm-hmm. Uh, with this, you use uh, specific palettes, one of them being that type of red. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, the green. Actually, right now you're wearing a green sweater. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Is that on
2: purpose? Uh, my clothing? or Because, <laughs> yeah, no, green, I just actually, green and red. <laughs> I always dress this way. Um, <laughs> actually, it's kind of embarrassing because, like, my bedroom and my studio, like, everything I decorate is just sort of in this palette of green and reds um I'm, i've just obviously been always drawn to these colors if and if you look at like my portfolio online and my illustration work half of my the things i design are in that color scheme i just keep going back to it um but no specifically for the book it really did fit thematically uh, it wasn't a, a default choice by any means um so the the green really i feel kind of has this this rooted earthiness to it but also this feeling um of this witchy feeling too, mm-hmm. um, especially because we think of witches as, as, witches as having green skin. Um, and then the red, of course, ties into the red hair, but also into fire. And um, uh, I used it. It's a very bright red. It actually looks more orange when it's not mixed with the green. It's, mm-hmm. um, for readers who are curious, it's two Pantone colors. Um, and so together they, on some pages, make more of a brown, and some pages they lean more to one or the other.
1: uh when you did did the originals um were they just in black and then you set the Pantone printing colors for that yeah it was actually
2: I don't want to bore people too much with the technical side of it but it was an extremely laborious task (laughs) like extremely and actually when I do my book talks I talk about it and it probably bores people there but it's like I almost need people to know how much work went into it um so they'll appreciate it more (laughs) I just appreciate it. Like,
1: this. do
2: you do that in Photoshop or you? Yeah, so um, I have the scan and I did it in either ink or in pencil. Uh, if it's a childhood story, it's in pencil because I wanted to kind of have this sort of more malleable, softer feeling. And uh, I scan that in and then I convert it to grayscale and then I convert it to multi channel and then from, or sorry, then I convert it to duotone, then I pick those two colors, then I convert it to multi channel and then I'm able to. Add and subtract color from either of those channels, so either the green okay, channel yeah. or the red channel. The really difficult part about all of this, though, is that you can't work in layers in multi-channel. So you can't like build up your image in any way. Um, and you also, it, multi-channel disables about like a third of the tools you would normally use in Photoshop. So you can't use like quick select. So if I want that area to be red, and I want to add more red to it, I actually just have to color it in and try to color within the lines. And when I say color, I mean like with my <laughs> digital tablet. So it was super, super time-consuming and so frustrating. If I needed to make a change in the actual artwork, um, sometimes if it was a big change, I'd have to actually just go back to the scan and recolor everything from the start because it would just be really... Because copy and paste don't work the same way. And Anyway, it was just a a nightmare to lay that thing out. Um, And then it made huge file sizes that... If I was trying to view it in my InDesign file on a high display performance, then it would crash my whole computer. It was just really, like, it was a night I never made anything as a duotone before this book, and then I just went ahead and did the whole thing, but... Will you do it again? I want to say no, but then I'll probably eat my words, because I am very happy with how it looks, Mm -hmm. you know, in the end.
1: I like it uh, when people limit themselves like that, and see what they can do with it. Well,
2: it also, it still felt like a kind of a bonus thing too, because photobiography is in black and white. And so just to get to play with color, even though it's a limited palette, really felt uh, exciting. But it, it does add hours and hours to each page just to consider those things.
1: Uh, no, you will be at, uh, the Waterloo Wild Writers Festival mm-hmm. in, uh, November 7th and 8th in Waterloo, Ontario, mm-hmm. and then in Montreal for Exposine on November 14th. You're just going for the one day? Uh,
2: 14th, 14th and 15 15, 15th, 15th for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Got a wedding to go to in the afternoon. Yeah. Are
1: you tabling with Conundrum for yeah. that? Yeah, I'll yourself? be
2: with Conundrum, yeah, or maybe just beside Conundrum, but. I'll be there.
1: Be close by. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining me today. Reminder, folks, I've been talking to Mix Fitzgerald, and her new book is Long Red Hair, as well as Photobooth, a biography, both from Conundrum.
2: Great. Thanks for having me.
4: i yeah.